Every leader has a strategy. Executing on that strategy is the challenge. If you want to learn how to effectively achieve what you've set out to accomplish, then this show is for you. Gain keen insights and listen in as leaders share their stories and challenges. Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation welcome you to Leader Dialogue Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Leader Dialogue, brought to you by Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. I'm Duffy Dixon. Joining me is Jennifer Strahan. She is the Chief Operating Officer with Soar Vision Group. Jennifer has partnered with more than 100 health systems and businesses across the U.S., helping them transform their strategic and administrative operations. Next to her is Lisa Council. She is the Chief Commercial Officer for SOAR. She comes to them with more than two decades of clinical leadership and clinical informatics experience. She also spent 19 years at the McKesson Corporation, leading large teams in clinical consulting, direct sales, and sales support. We're very honored to have our guest today. It is Lyndall Fields. Lyndall is an education thought leader with more than three decades of experience instilling a love of learning in students and transforming cultures at public institutions to unshackle them from assumptions limiting student and faculty potential. As a speaker and a coach, Lyndall Fields helps leaders and organizations become great places to work with world-class results. As the superintendent at Tri-County Tech, he led that organization to earn a top spot on Fortune's Great Places to Work list four years in a row. And in 2018, Tri-County Tech earned the prestigious Malcolm Baldridge Award. And of course, Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation work hand in hand. So congratulations, Lyndall, and welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Duffy. Thank you. And I am so excited. We have sort of termed this as what we're going to call this uh, today, which is the power of an engaged workforce. And I'm so interested about this because as we've discussed on the show, if your workforce is not empowered and engaged, you're missing most of the pie, right? Yeah, right? for sure. Most of the pieces of the pie. For sure, for That's sure. Right. Lyndall, it's Lisa. Thanks again for joining today. Um, as we kick off, if we could, I know uh, Duffy did a great job giving you a little bit about your background, but if you could tell the listening audience, and oh, by the way, the audience, as you guys listen, follow along on leaderdialogue.com, and that's D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E. Um, we would love to have you guys, uh, again, follow along live with us. Um, but tell us a little bit about your background and how you, um, how you came to TriTech, and then also um, kind of what steps you brought you to the Baldridge. Yeah, you bet. Happy to share that. Well, these, these days, uh, post-Baldridge, uh, Tri-County and myself are working with organizations and leaders to help them become great places to work with world-class results. And that all started about 20 years ago when I came to Tri-County Tech as a young assistant superintendent. And, uh, you know, it was, it was probably about 10 to 15 years ago where we started to look at what we were doing, Lisa. And we determined that we were pretty good at a lot of stuff, but if we were going to be great at something, we had to subscribe to something bigger than any one of us could accomplish alone, a plan, a system, a, a routine. And that's when we began to look at, at Baldridge. And as we began to weave that into our fabric and our operations at Tri-County, we just got better and better. And uh, we've really emerged ourselves into Baldridge over those years. And and it's paid off. It, it's actually worked. So that's a little bit about me and a little bit about Tri-County. Tri-County is one of 29 tech centers in Oklahoma, technical school. We train nurses and hygienists, cosmetologists, and 
many states those are community colleges. The difference is we have high school and adult students in our programs, and we, we're not degree granting. We offer certificates here at Tri-County. So that's a little bit about me and a little bit about uh, Tri-County, Lisa. That's awesome. That's awesome. So from start to finish, how long from the time you submitted um, your Baldridge application? Um, again, it looks like you started kind of the process 10 to 15 years ago. How long did it actually take your organization on that journey? Wow. So, you know, we we had the long version and we have the short version. So we started to dabble in Baldrige back in 2003, really at the state level, and began to attend conferences, the national conference. But in earnest, I would say it was probably closer to five or six years ago. And specific to Baldrige, we, um, after we won the state level, Lisa, we, um, we didn't submit an application the following year. The year after that, we submitted our first Baldridge application, then a second, and then our third application was actually the one that resulted in us earning the award. So the uh, the long version is it was about 13 years, but we put the pedal to the metal about six years ago. That's awesome, and that's pretty common. I know in, right. many, in many verticals, it's um, that 9 to 10, sometimes longer, but people don't always, they're not on the full official journey. So. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I think that makes I think that makes perfect sense. I think it varies a lot on what's embedded in the DNA. So, Lyndall, I would love to hear a little bit about what there's this process, this journey where whether you're starting out for the first time with Baldridge, you can go through this process, and it probably takes a little bit longer. Versus when you become really earnest into it, as you mentioned, it starts to ex- accelerate with what you start to see because you get momentum. And I think of it like a snowball going downhill. Not that we ever really get that over here, but <laughs> great right. analogy. No, I like to great dream. analogy. <laughs> How about a tumbleweed? If we're in Phoenix, that would work. Right. <laughs> That'll work. So I'm just curious. You know, what was it that kind of pushed you guys over the edge? to say, all right, we're not dabbling anymore. Now we actually are kind of moving forward full force. Yeah, so I, th- I think you have to, to really look at the first part to put that into perspective. You know, it's um, we had to build the foundation of the, the house before we could really get serious about it. You know, our customers are students. So um, in order to, to help our students by the masses, we recognize that we had to do something different. We're a public institution, but we're a business. So we began to look at look at things differently, um, and we had to get our workforce in order, right? Mm-hmm. And we we knew until we did that, um, we really weren't going to be able to help the students by the masses. So uh, we call it vision is the spark, culture is the flame. So the first thing we did was create a vision, a vision, um, what we called Vision 2020. And if you don't mind, I'll break that down for you, but it was four major goals intended to establish Tri-County as one of the premier education entities in the United States. And this happened before we submitted our any application for Great Places to Work or Baldridge. So we knew what the mountaintop looked like. We just had to figure out, you know, how to get there. So you have to paint a vision like any championship baseball team. All championship baseball teams want to win the World Series. And everybody wants to be a part of a winning team and something bigger than themselves. So we painted the vision and created a culture capable of reaching that vision. It sounds simple now, <laughs> but um, that was really our, our method to the madness. Does that mm-hmm. uh, help you understand a little bit better? Absolutely. You know what's interesting? You say it sounds easy, but it's those abstract things, like actually turning a vision into reality that I think is so complicated and where organizations often struggle because it's easy to sound, sound, you know, it sounds simple. I can't speak today when it's abstract, but yet it's very hard to actually turn it around. 
Um, and I love what you said. Vision is the spark. Culture is the flame. How true right. is that? So yeah. tell us a little bit about how your workforce was um, prior to Baldridge. Sure. Well, you know, we were we are a good organization. We have uh, loving people, educators that we call all of our folks educators, and uh, you know, teaching kids and um, just doing the best best we could. Um, but back then, we had a, a divisive teachers association. There was. Um, negotiations going on, which, by the way, there hasn't been a teacher negotiation at Tri-County in uh, 12 years, I, I believe now. Wow, that's wow. awesome. Uh, how about that? <laughs> so that's exciting because we're all on the same page and we take care of each other. And in 2004, I believe it was, we implemented performance-based pay at our at our campus. And every year since, every person at Tri-County has received a raise and been eligible for a bonus. And and I have to tell you, that's in Oklahoma, you know, and like everybody else, we had two recessions, and we just made that a priority. But, you know, pay and benefits is only the beginning. You have to do those things to mm-hmm. even play the game of baseball, to go back to my other analogy. It's the, um, it's the culture after that. Um, you know, you have, to, you have to touch the heart before you ask for the mm-hmm. hand. I and, did love that. Um, so... And and now we're all we're all in it together. It reminds me of a book uh, relevant to healthcare where it's called "Patients Come Second. And the whole premise behind the book is that if you focus on your employees and your team first, they will naturally treat your patients better. And it's obviously directly transferable to education space. Um, and so you mentioned things like pay for performance is one example of that's meaningful to employees, right? Their pocketbook mm-hmm. impacts their family, impacts what they do uh, and how they can actually bring joy to their their personal lives as well as that of obviously flows into professional lives. So I think it's a really important piece of what you're talking about with workforce and how you you have good people. So how do you support them to be the best they can in their roles? Right. And so... You know, you, you mentioned the pay for performance and benefits, and I uh, want to reiterate, those, those things are important, but what people really need in an organization is often what um, leaders miss. I have the opportunity to coach a few executives in my role, and um, they're often um, deflated or discouraged mm-hmm. and sometimes say that employees don't appreciate me. You know, I give them time off, I pay them well. But what what employees need beyond that is they need proximity. They mm-hmm. they need proximity to the leaders. Yes. Uh, number one, and number two, they they want and need meaningful work, and they want to be a part of something a vision that's um, significant at the end of the day. And um, you know, it it may seem so simple that being gracious in the workplace is a given, but it's sometimes um, not. And that's really what made the difference, I believe, at Tri-County. So, you know, more organizations, and this has probably happened over the last eight to ten years, or, you know, they, they embark on, you know, this town hall philosophy, right? The bigger mm-hmm. organization, I came from a really big um, McKesson uh, corporation, and, you know, town halls, we tried to make, you know, executives and leaders accessible, even though there were lots of people around. Can you compare and contrast maybe your environment to maybe what organizations think we're bringing mm-hmm. our leaders in, we're getting them in front of the people? Is that equal to what you did at TriTech? Yeah, so that's a really good point. You know, town halls, bringing the leaders, making them accessible. 
that's that's good, but that's that's really pretty basic stuff. And I recognize that lots of organizations have, you know, hundreds of hundreds of employees. Um, a lot of organizations also talk about transparency, and that's mm-hmm. really what bringing the leaders into the fold is all about. For us, what we began to do is I have 93 um, educators that I get to work with, and I meet with them one-on-one, actual one-on-one meetings to talk about That's their awesome. hopes and dreams. And when you do that, you learn so much about an individual, an individual in your organization that has leukemia, that has $1,000 a month medical bills, or a person in your organization that has the capacity to work on your vehicles and you didn't know it. I could go on and on mm-hmm. with examples. Now, is it realistic for somebody with 5,000 employees to do that? Probably not, but one of the simplest things we've done was cut down on the number of communication methods. And if you don't mind, I'll get specific to Baldridge. You know, if if you uh, if you put it in an application, they're going to look at it. And we were so proud of ourselves in the early days to say that we had 18 communication methods. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> And uh, more is not always better. Right. Less is more. Stick to the core is one of our, our mantras. And so we have three communication methods. So I can't visit with everybody every day, but I can get on a Facebook Live and tell the educators on our Facebook page, let them know the most important three things they need to know this week. And that's all people really want to know. They just they want the information. And you don't have to tell them that you're – firing somebody or your right. trade secrets. They just want to know the boss is available and that what's going on in the organization. So that's a simple way people can do it, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, another, this reminds me of uh, one of the mechanisms that we often share with organizations, and you're probably familiar with it, is catchball, right? So that is a method where there's a few different layers within catchball. So there's an executive component where you're bringing your leaders together. Uh, there's a leadership per- component where you're bringing your senior leaders as well as your middle managers and frontline all together on, for instance, in this case, a weekly rounding situation where you may have your executive leader partnering with a middle manager and they're rounding on a frontline unit or a frontline department, or it could be your educators, or um, again, I tend to refer to healthcare just because that's my world, but certainly transferable. And in the midst of that, it can't just be like, oh, hey, Duffy, how are you today? Right? Because how's everything going? Oh, it's it's good. Yeah, mm-hmm. everything's good. Right? But if you actually have very targeted communication that you're working through, hey, I see your metrics are actually uh, trending up. What have you guys been doing? That's really great. Or I see you guys kind of hit a little bit of a snag. So it becomes much more uh, meaningful, meaningful communication where that transparency actually leads to not only openness, but accountability, which is, a again, it's, it's easy to talk about, but when you actually implement a mechanism behind it, it supports exactly that you're talking about. You're bringing the leaders to the front line in a meaningful way. And you also have to have that trust built in before that, because mm-hmm. I know that a lot of people, when the boss comes, you know, when they say, let's all go to lunch, yeah. right? <laughs> let's, let's do a round table lunch. You know, the, the, some of the workers will think, uh-oh, yeah. what is this? And so when employees are asked to be honest or provide feedback mm-hmm. for their superiors, it has to be a safe space. Yep. And it has to be acknowledged that however they, you know, let their feelings be heard. Let their hearing down. Right. <laughs> but right, right. But seriously, because yeah. I mean, the problem is, you know, it's the same thing when a new manager comes in or a new CEO, you know, I have an open door policy. I'd love to know what you'd like us to do better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the big joke is, 
whatever you do, don't go in there and say, right, 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 because this is a trap. They're making the list of who goes, who's going to be gone in a month. Uh Right. And one thing I recommend if organizations are starting is actually round on areas that aren't yours. So that way there's, I mean, obviously it'll take a little time to get used to people, but it's not the feeling of um, either tattling or, well, as soon as I tell you, you're just going to kind of throw me under the bus or get on to me for saying it. And you're right. It takes time to build that culture, which obviously is not an easy easy element to work through in an organization. So Lyndall, how did you start to kind of see that transition with, from where you started and to your point, you were a good organization, but uh, for those of you who have, you know, read, I think Jim Collins talks about good's the enemy of great. Mm -hmm. So how did you make that shift? You talked about changing your foundation and we're talking about workforce. Was there any one or two key things that you think just really resonated to kind of give you that pivot? Right. So, you know, whether it's rounding or any of the things that was just talked about, the key is consistency mm-hmm. and learning that, you know, um, it doesn't happen overnight. One of our mantras is it's not about what you do in a day, rather what you do daily that matters. There's no overnight successes. It just appears that way because people work their tails off for years behind the scenes and the ma- the magic happened. But if I was to look back, you know, what the pivotal the pivotal points were, it's really hard to say that one major thing happened. We just got really good at the blocking and tackling, and Baltridge for us was really about less is more. We quit doing stuff. And to fast forward just a little bit to get to your point, Tri-County made the um, intentional decision to eliminate our dependency on federal funding. Yes, I and, know. I heard you say that at one of your speeches, oh, which wow. is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell the audience about that. Right. Well, so our Vision 2020 that I mentioned, um, four huge goals, to be named one of the top places to work in the United States, grow our enrollments from 8,000 to 15,000, when we surpassed 24,000 last year, and, and, and to win the Baldridge Award. Those were significant goals, um, but a lot of attention is given to the fact that we did away with federal funding. That wasn't our our early intention. It just happened as a result of paying attention to the criteria and being true to ourselves and recognizing that if you're going to follow the criteria, you have to follow it all the way and it takes courage. Mm -hmm. Federal funding was a five-pound weight around our ankles as we were trying Mm -hmm. to run around the track, weighting us down and siphoning precious resources that could be used for a core program. So you look up and sometimes you, you take money that isn't core to your mission and uh, we decided we were going to quit doing that, and we did a five-year plan to get rid of it, and uh, we eliminated the dependency in three years, including wow. Pell Grants, by the way. Wow. That's and amazing. Um, since that time, our retention rates have gone up significantly every year. So, um, again, it wasn't our original plan, but these are the byproducts, the good things that can happen when you, you know, commit to something significant. So what does that mean to students when you eliminate federal funding? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, Tri-County's most expensive program is $4,500 for a nursing program. includes books, tuition, fees, the whole nine yards, which by higher education standards is an absolute bargain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, For sure. So we haven't raised our tuition in in, uh, 10 years. But if an organization, education entities are businesses. They're big businesses. And uh, if you look at your, your balance sheet, the money coming in from Pell... Um, comes in and then goes out uh, to students. 
And the challenge for a student is they, for us, they're in their late 20s, early 30s. Life hasn't gone the way they thought it should. Um, They didn't go to college. They didn't go to career tech. They have three kids. They can't make ends meet, and they can't quit um, work to go to school full time. Well, Pell wouldn't begin to pay the difference. Student loans are outrageous. So what we did is we created flex programs. And so an adult can come to us two nights a week and one Saturday a month. So a husband and a wife, they can sit around the, the dinner table and they can, they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. They can keep their jobs. They can work. And we'll give them a scholarship um, up to two-thirds of their tuition. Everybody has to have skin in the game. And so um, when people can work and go to school, I think that's the ideal, ideal situation. Oh, for sure. And, that's amazing. But you're right. I mean, when I heard Pell Grant, like I have two daughters in mm-hmm. college right now and, you know, right. a traditional four-year school, it is big business. We're paying big money. I'm fortunate my kids have scholarships. Thank you. Thank you to everybody. Um, right. Um, but it is big business. But when I hear Pell Grant, again, as a listener, I think, wow, that, that would be negative to those students who get full tuition paid. But in your environment, again, your buyer is different. Your customer is different. That's, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, what we've done is not for everybody. Uh, we're not suggesting that everybody needs to do away with Pell Grants or federal money, but I think everybody has to look at themselves, look in the mirror, and ask if they're being true to what their, their vision and their mission is. And, you know, that's Baldrige 101, right? And, um, and can you um, really, like I said, look in the mirror and um, are you being being true to yourself so it's not it's not for everybody um but for us it was the right choice we were able to free up local dollars to support our our core programs and services like everybody else you know we're a public institution we were funded by tax dollars so you want to make the best use of those dollars as you possibly can absolutely i was going to ask i'm fascinated by um technical colleges because i think uh more and more, and I think this started, I'm going to say about five to ten years ago, but there was uh, such, uh, there were huge discussions going on, as you mentioned, because of the cost of college. Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone is um, already tending to to love something about technical college, good with their hands. I mean, there are so many jobs now that are available, and people do not have the training for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lyndall doesn't know this, but I used to be a television reporter, and I would go, which is a great job. I loved it thoroughly. And one of the things I would do is go talk to schools. And mm-hmm. every kid, why don't it doesn't matter. Whenever you go to talk to a school, be prepared for this question: How much do you make? Oh wow! Yeah, yeah it's right. like the second question. Mm-hmm. That and have you been in a hurricane? Those are the two questions. <laughs> um, but how much you make? Which was really, you know, obviously I can't divulge this, be, divulge that because of my company. But I don't. I try to always say something like, just so you know, a self-employed plumber makes more. I mean, really. I mean, yeah. you need to. I, and I would say things like that, and they kind of look at me. I'd say. You guys need to, you know, think about it's not just people are on TV who make mm-hmm, money, which, mm-hmm. by the way, they really don't make that much money. That's the big false. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, but these things like they, I feel like there's been more of a conversation about technical schools and more of a passion for it. Is that true? Uh, without a doubt. Well, we we could spend a, another hour talking about that. So there's a, really a renaissance right now with technical education. And um, for the reasons you mentioned, um, the industries are what we call graying out. So you have a major skills gap. There's not enough plumbers. There's not enough electricians. 
And I give a talk, and I often ask the audience, I said, do you have a choice on Saturday morning? You can either have the cold, have a cold, or your heater goes out. What are you going to choose? Well, <laughs> probably both. <laughs> right? You're going to you, you can make a choice not to go to the doctor, but you can't make a choice. You can't fix your own heater, right? right? So, um, for a long time, hard work became a dirty word, and and you hear often that four-year degrees were pushed. But I I think I'm on a, a one-man mission to try to change the narrative on that. It's not about college or career mm-hmm. tech. Kids can absolutely do both. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is only about half the kids in the United States do anything after high school. Wow. So, wow. That's a shame. Oh, wow. Right. Wow. Can you believe that? No. So, no. Actually. Staggering. We do pretty good, really, of getting th- kids through high school. And um, I'll, just, I'll just say this because I really believe it. A high school diploma in and of itself doesn't have much value mm-hmm. unless you don't have one. So doing something after high school is absolute paramount, and that's what we have to get kids to do, whether it's career tech, technical school. And we talked about the cost of college. My gosh, yes, it's expensive, but going through the technical route, a two-year route where you can work and go to school, you can really limit that um, that debt uh, by choosing other routes and just being creative. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the four-year post-high school route was built in 19... 19- you know, 60, um, kids are going to live to be 100. You know, we could change how education's done, I believe. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And there's so many that get out with a pretty generic business degree or psychology, some some generic (laughs) psychology degree, and they can't find a job for years. And I know my niece... Or go to more school. Right. Go go back to school. And my Mm -hmm. niece, she had a private four-year college, private school, Mm -hmm. couldn't get a job. She saw that I was a nurse and I always had a job and she went back to nursing school and she went to a trade school in Mm -hmm. North Carolina. Um, So, you know, again, I I think we're doing our kids a disservice oftentimes when we say, oh, yeah, just go to college for four years and you'll be fine. That's not always the case. And I have friends who had four-year degrees and one of them just went back. I mean, I don't want to age her, but I'm going to say at the age of 45 to become a nurse. Because she had a marketing degree, she worked in that, then she had kids and everything else, she, and she had the discussion. Those were our best students in my nursing classes, were, the, were the moms who right. came back. And she mm-hmm. said they this paid for it themselves. Yep. Right. And, right. But, but mm-hmm. and especially kids who don't know what they want to do, there is no sense in sending them to, a, you know, at least, they could have at least two years to decide what they like. Yep. Right. right. Well, the, the, the thing that really is attractive to me when you think about this is that you come out, you actually have a degree, and you have a plan. I mean, you have an employable right. plan at yeah. the moment you graduate, regardless, or with your certificate or, or your degree, regardless of which way you go. Um, so it's interesting because my, my husband and I are like complete opposites. So he, we both start, started college. He eventually, it was not his path. He didn't like it. I mean, he could do it. He's mm-hmm. really smart. Um, but he's actually a craftsman. So he does woodworking and uh, started his own company. And that's his world. And he loves it. Me, I admire the trade. I don't have the talent, but I like to ha- give him jobs. <laughs> and, then, right. and then on the other side, you know, I'm I'm a nerd. I love school. Um, and I think it's given me, you know, a lot of opportunities. But I, I also recognize the for- that I've been fortunate in many ways. And so I think that there's paths that work. And the reality is a society needs both. Mm-hmm. Yes. For sure. Without for sure. a doubt. 
for sure. So was and and we're getting close on the end. I'm a t- right. We're we're Lindell, abs- Lindell is a great guest. Oh my goodness, <laughs> for sure, for sure. So oh, um, as we as we kind of wrap up, and we're going to have you back next week, Lindell. So um, we'll dig into some of this. But just um, in closing, I would like to kind of get your feeling again around the importance of workforce. Again, it sounds like you coach some leaders, which is really awesome. I know you're on the speaking circuit, um, which is great. And you're really trying to get the message out. Um, but what would you tell our listening audience uh, really around the importance of their workforce? Um, you know, again, daily, doing that daily change. Um, what, what, what advice would you give them? Right. So, you know, workforce is key to everything. And um, you know, it's it's not original original to us. Richard Branson talks about it all the time. Take care of your people. They're going to take care of your mm-hmm. customers. In the education business, you have to recognize that students are your customers. And, and in our case, we are a choice. So if your workforce is not, not committed to the vision, then um, you can have decent results. You can have good results. But until you really engage the workforce, um, having great results um, – I believe are out of out of reach for just about about any organization. And again, it, it doesn't have to be um, costly things. You have to have good pay and benefits. I can't help you if you don't do that. It's like a ball and a bat in a baseball game. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't play if you don't have a ball and a bat. But if that's all you have, you're not going to be very good. Mm-hmm. You have to create a culture. Culture wins games. Winning games fills the stands. Mm-hmm. Good point. Thank you so much, Lyndall Fields, for joining us. We really appreciate it. And again, we're excited. We get to talk to you next week as well. Thank you to everyone for listening here on Leader Dialogue, brought to you by SOAR Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. Remember, you can listen to a new live show every Friday at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. You can go on to businessradiox.com and look at the Gwinnett Studio. Our show is there. And it's also, as we gave you that website earlier, leaderdialogue.com slash podcast. On behalf of Jennifer and Lisa and the SOAR Vision Group and our producer, Mike, I'm Duffy Dixon. Join us next time on Leader Dialogue here on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.